Blog Talk Radio. Oh, good morning, everyone. Good afternoon for those on the East Coast. This is Stuart Crawford with Small Business IT Radio on January the 18th, 2008. We've got a wild blast of winter weather come ripping through Calgary today, so a little bit of snow on the ground and the return of some frigid temperatures. But anyway, we're warm inside. We're on Small Business IT Radio. Again, Stuart Crawford, uh, and uh, welcome all the IT professionals and small business specialists that are tuning in live to us today on Block Talk Radio. Or if you happen to be downloaded this on your iPod or your Zoom or whatever MP3 device you're using, welcome to you uh, listening uh, on the recording. Today we are joined by a great colleague of mine, uh, one of those guys that I look up to in the industry for business-savvy information. I thought it would be great to have Larry Kesslin come on and talk to us about uh, the business side and accountability in our workplaces, leadership, all those other great things that uh, we need in our small business IT practices to propel us through to the next level. And I had an opportunity to listen to Larry speak, I think a couple of times last year, the one that stands out the most is at SMB Nation uh, in, the, in the fall in, uh, in Redmond, where he was talking about the culture of accountability. So I'd like to welcome Larry Kesslin to the program the, uh, this morning or this afternoon. And Larry joins us live from uh, New York City. Larry, you got that winter going on down there? Um, it's actually a beautiful day today. I think uh, looking at somewhere in the mid-40s and not as bad as it's been and not as bad as it's going to be in Green Bay on Sunday for the Giants and the Packers. But... Uh, can't imagine what that's going to be like, but I don't have anything to deal like, with it. If it was anything like it was last week, I was watching the uh, the other game on the TV in the snowstorm. I think it was uh, them Green in Bay Seattle. And Seattle. So. Yeah. Anyway, uh, two winter teams. Hopefully, uh, if, it, if it is bad, they probably can work themselves through it. Larry, you know, they, there's a lot of small business specialists listening today. Perhaps they all had an opportunity to listen to you speak at all the conferences that you do and, uh, and through the MFHTG program. But for those that are not aware who Larry Kessel is, um, can you give us a brief introduction about who you are and what and the services that you provide to the community? Sure. Um, I'll go back a little bit. I have a corporate career um, that I started. I graduated school back in '85. I'm a degree engineer, and I got to sell technology for about ten years, nine years or so. Um, the last five was with GE. Um, I was a channel account manager for them, selling industrial control systems. And before that, I worked for a small solution provider. Um, left the uh, corporate world in uh, April 15th, 1993, not that I remember dates, but um, that was a very important date for me, and I have not had a job since. So uh, it's been almost 15 years. Uh, I consider myself at this point genetically unemployable and uh, have been building a number of different businesses since that point. Uh, Right now, our focus has been, uh, since 2001, on solution providers. Actually, all I do is focus on helping solution providers become more profitable. We do that a couple of different ways. Um, Our main programs have been peer programs, bringing together non-competing solution providers from across the country. Um, And we've done that in a unique way. We've done it with specific vendors. So we built a program in 2001 for Avaya, where we brought together non-competing Avaya partners from across the country. Um, We did it with IBM, and we're launching a program right now with Cisco. Um, We also do one-on-one coaching with select solution providers, typically companies between Boston and Washington, D.C., so we can actually drive to them and get to them easily. Um, And those programs are pretty customized. Um, We're at the point right now, one of the things that you saw an event in uh, back in October, I did my first speech ever on this concept that we're calling culture of accountability. And one of the things that for-profit is starting to do, and for-profit, again, is just myself and a partner, 
is really start to productize all of the intellectual capital we've gained over the last 15 years or more um, in how to run a successful business, and specifically a solution provider business. So we're in the final days of uh, getting our book ready for print, and that book is called Mastering a Culture of Accountability um, under the Built for Profit brand, which is all of our educational products, and looking forward to getting that into print probably in the next 30 to 60 days. So it's been a pleasure. I enjoy working with the partner community. I have a lot of friends. I've spoken at a lot of conferences, including Gartner and SMB Nation and most of the major vendors. I've spoken for Ingram, Adventure Tech, and um, HP and, and IBM and, and many others. So I've enjoyed the opportunity to meet a lot of really bright um, individuals that are running some wonderful companies and some that are a little challenged. So it's across the board. Well, I have to so thank, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. I'd like to thank you for introducing that free conference pro conference bridge. What a wonderful uh, tool that is, by the way. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of free stuff out there. Um, it's interesting that uh, <laughs> I think I heard at the SMB conference one of the best acronyms I've heard in a long time. It was called SWIPE, which is Steel with Integrity, Pride, and Excellence, I believe. So um, there's very little that's new, and there's a lot of great stuff out there. It's just that most people don't know where it is. Yeah, I learned that the acronym. I think it was maybe it was me that shared it with you. A friend of mine in the Mike IMCP community said we we're in Redmond at a meeting. Says you should just swipe that. I went, what do you mean swipe? It was still, still with integrity and pride everywhere. But I like that excellence <laughs> little. I like that excellence uh, tag onto it. It just adds a little bit more punch to it. So hey, uh, yep. but uh, you know all the great business coaches and consultants. You know all the stuff we talk about on this program and we will talk about today. This is not, this is not new. This has been around forever. But we all take it and kind of put our own little twist on it, so it, it, it brands it a little bit, makes it a little bit unique. And I got a slide deck that I happen to have of yours on my computer right now. And one of the things I like about it, you start off your slide deck with a quote from Michael Gerber. And this hits most of us in the small business specialist community, that most entrepreneurs are not entrepreneurs at all. They are really technicians that are, have an entrepreneurial seizure. I love that quote. It's, it's fantastic. Can you talk about that a little bit, Larry? Sure. Um well, Gerber's a really interesting gentleman. He's a, a very, he wrote a great book about what it's like to be a small business owner. And the reality is that most people are not business owners. What they are are technicians. They're in your business. They're good at fixing computers or selling computers. Uh, in the accounting business, they're good at doing the accounting. In the legal practice, they're good at doing law. In the bakery business, they're good at baking the cakes. But running a business is a whole different issue. Um, there are some professional business owners out there that it doesn't matter what business they're in, they will be successful because the rules of business um, have very little to do with the profession that you choose to run your business in. So what Gerber was talking about is that most people are really not good at running businesses. They're good at doing the work. And in our industry, you really run into two types of people that run solution providers, those that can fix the, the stuff and those that can sell the stuff. And sometimes the industry that we've done some research that says 75% of the companies out there have multiple owners. And typically it's a guy who can sell this stuff who's partnered with a guy who can fix this stuff or a woman that's decided that she can sell this stuff or fix this stuff, and they partner together. And um, there's a lot of issues behind all of that. Partnerships are challenging, um, so somebody might outgrow somebody else over time. Uh, there's a lot of pieces to it, but that whole idea of running a business, and, and I'll give you one example of it, is the whole use of equity, is that most people don't understand the value of equity, and they give it away when they should be selling it, and they bring in partners when they don't need them, and they give people 
control of their business that they never should give them control in the first place. And that has a lot to do with inexperience as being a business owner. So what Gerber's really talking about is, and in our industry, I would say 90-plus percent of the people I've met um, are first-time business owners. And when you start a business for the first time, you will make mistakes. Um, Stuart, you talked to me earlier about this whole concept of what you know and what you don't know and what you don't know you don't know. Um, that's what I see in business is that I have yet to see a business fail for a unique reason. It's failed for the same reason that thousands of other businesses have failed before, except the person running that business hadn't experienced it yet. So whether it was lack of collections or whether it was cash flow, which is due to lack of collections, or whether it was a lawsuit from a client that they didn't expect, whether it was a client that never paid, whether it was a employee that left and stole your two biggest customers, whatever it is that caused your business to be in pain, other businesses have gone through the same situations before and have failed from it. The challenge is that you hadn't and that you didn't know what to do when that situation arose. And uh, I'll give you a specific example of one of our clients. Um, he was a minority owner. There were three owners of a business, 40, 40, 20. And two of the equity holders that owned 40 and 20% had a non, they couldn't sell the business without 100% approval from all the stakeholders. But they wanted to sell the business, and the 40% equity holder didn't. So instead of selling the business, they did a reverse triangular merger, which I had never heard of. But I called one of my mentors, and I said, what is this? He said, I've been through three of them, and this is what they are. So it's not like it was new, but it was new to me. It was new to my client, and he had no idea how to deal with it. And he ended up losing his business because he didn't know how to deal with it. And we found that information way too late. But it wasn't new. It was something that others had done. And it was uh, an interesting way for someone to lose a business. But it's all, nothing's very new. Well, that's, I'm a big advocate, Larry, of, you know, sharpening the saw. Yep. Uh, you know, Arlen, my, one of my mentors, uh, and you know Arlen well, yep. uh, wrote in, uh, in his Peer Power book that I was, I'm a continuous learner. So I always like to learn new stuff and, and keep my uh, skills sharp. But you know what? There's always stuff out there that I still don't know. And I, I, mean, I learn something new every day, which, is, which to me is growth. But let's talk about that circle of knowledge. There's the, you know, the stuff that you know, the stuff that you don't know, and the stuff that you don't know that you don't know. Um, Let me start off with Can we expand on that a little bit? Sure. So there, what I learn every day is the more I learn, the more I realize I know nothing. I mean, really, at the end of the day, there's so much knowledge in the world that I know nothing about. So if we look at a circle, which is the circle of knowledge, and you say in this circle, all the knowledge in the world fits in this circle, they really break up the circle into three slices. The smallest slice, which is really a sliver, is the stuff that you know. But that's the stuff you consciously know. You know your name. You know where you're from. You know your birth date. You know your spouse's name. You know your spouse's birth date, I would hope. I mean, those are things that you know. Then the second slice of the pie, which is pretty small as well, is the stuff that you don't know. But that's the stuff that's consciously in your mind that you don't know. And the examples I use is like, I know that somebody can get to the moon, but I have no idea how to get to the moon. So I don't know how to do that, but I know it exists. I know there's such a thing as scratch golf. I know it's something I'll probably never do. Those are things I don't know. The biggest piece of the pie is stuff that you don't know that you don't even know. And I'll give you the business example. So I gave you the reverse triangular merger, which is stuff that you don't know you don't know. But I had a friend on Long Island 
who um, he had a company, 35 employees, decided to offer health benefits to the whole company as a new perk to keep employees happy. And the first employee left, and about 45 to 50 days later, the owner got a letter from the employee's lawyer, the ex-employee's lawyer, saying, you never offered my client COBRA. And the law in the state of New York says, if you do not offer COBRA to an employee within 30 days of termination, then you are responsible for paying that person's health benefits for the next 18 months. So here's a company that is employing individuals as a benefit decides to offer them health insurance, lets somebody leave the company, doesn't offer them COBRA, and now is responsible for paying close to $1,000 a month for the next 18 months for something they didn't know that they didn't know. And that's the stuff that kills you because that's pure bottom line profit. That just comes right off of the business, and that is painful. So every business that I talk to, and I'll say it right now, and, and I've never seen the perfect business, ever. And I don't think I ever will because there is no such thing. So every business has challenges. And the reason they have challenges is because the owners and the founders and the leaders of that business don't know what they don't know. <clears throat> so they're good at whatever they're good at. But you can't be good at everything. If you think of the litany of things that you need to learn about as an owner, starting with finance, operations, sales, marketing, uh, understanding operational efficiencies, and understanding the inner workings of your business. Then you drill into each one of those. In finance alone, you could spend an entire career becoming a CFO. In sales alone, you could spend an entire career becoming a professional salesperson who has the ability to teach others how to sell. But you don't have that luxury. You need to be kind of good at all of them or hire people around you that are good. And that is challenging. And that's where we see a lot of businesses not do as well as they could because they don't know what they don't know. Does that make sense? Perfect. Does I um, was in, in the gym this morning. I was listening to a Brian Tracy CD on my on my iPod. On my iPod there. One of the things that it said in that uh, in that talk was hopefully I got got this right. And Brian Tracy said uh, around this, these lines that successful business people or successful people in life are not impressed with how much they know. They're impressed off with how much they don't know. Yep. And unsuccessful people are made are 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 dazzled with their with, with their intelligence and they th that they think they know it all. It's and amazing to me. I mean, I love spending time with really smart people. I mean, it's just so humbling to sit there. I met a gentleman recently who's got a photographic memory and he just He's so knowledgeable, and he still doesn't know a fraction of a fraction of a percent of all the knowledge in the world. Photographic memory can remember everything he's ever read, but yet he's only speaking in English. I mean, I'm not sure he knows how to speak one of the hundreds of languages that exist on this planet. So if you just think it from that perspective, we know a, a, a smidgen of the fraction of information that is available in the English language. Think about every other culture and every other language that exists out there. And if you start thinking about people that spend their entire lives just focusing on marine biology and everything that happens under the sea, and those people focused on I mean, there's just so much knowledge. It's, it's, it's amazing. And for anybody to think that they're so smart is, is mind-boggling, because the smarter you are, you realize how much, how, and also how insignificant you are at the end of the day. And no matter how much you think about it every day, this is where I think some people break down. 
is they think that they're not only they think they're important, but they think what they do at the end of the day is so critical to the world that the world wouldn't survive without them. And that's not true at all. I mean, we all hope that we can make our impact, and I do my piece, and I spend time with my family as much as I can, and we volunteer as much as we can, and we try and do good and give back to the community. But at the end of the day, when I'm gone, the community will continue, and Absolutely. the world will go on, and yeah, we're not true. that significant. That's, uh, it, took me a, it took me a few years to realize that myself. Um, I thought that it was... You know, one time that the world would the world would cease to spin if I uh, wasn't here anymore. <laughs> but you know, it's a kind of a humbling experience, and I like what you said about hanging out with smart people as well, because you know those are the guys that realize that they don't know it all, and they're the ones that are continuously out there uh, sharpening the saw. And this is why I, I like going to some of the conferences that we attend, because everybody's there for the same reason. They're all here to grow. They're all here to build a build a business or grow a business. Maybe they're looking for information on how to sell their business. And really, it's a big thing. They're here to create a lifestyle or create a life around their business. And when you go to these conferences, all the like minds come together, and it's quite powerful when everybody's talking the same language and everybody gets what each other is there, and everybody's willing to uh, uh, just sharpen their own saw. You know, I would, I would also suggest, Stuart, just one thing to think about is that each individual, anybody who's listening to the show or just anybody in general, needs to understand specifically how they learn. Um, everybody learns differently. Some people are auditory. Some people are very much into reading. Some people are into live conversation. So it's important for you to understand how you best learn. Um, I used to get very frustrated myself because, I mean, I love to read, but I don't read as much. But I'm much better learning from people than I am from anything else. So I have a very strong network, and I do a lot of outreach to people that I've never met before to just pick their brain because that's how I learn best. And everybody should understand how they learn best and surround yourself with people that can help you get where you want to go. We talked before this call about mentors and mentorship. There's lots of opportunity to find individuals that can help you um, take, you know, continue on your journey. If you've never read The Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman, it's a great book about just finding the right coach in your life at the right time and just because that coach works with you one way doesn't mean that everybody should be coached the same way, that everybody's got unique skills and everybody's got unique abilities, and that you should understand what they are and you should understand what you do best, and you should focus on your strengths. If you read uh, uh, Marcus Buckingham's uh, content, I mean, there's lots of great information out there, and you should become a lifelong learner. You should want to because then people around you will be attracted to you and, and they'll want to learn. And that's a lot. That's that's a big part of of growing a successful business. Well, I had mentorship kind of down the agenda a little bit, but you know what? We brought it up. Let's talk about it right now. You do that for your clients. I have a kind of a side hobby that I like to say that you know, that I do it, uh, mentoring small business specialists. I reach out to others for mentorship, like Arlen Sorensen and a few others, and um, you do the same thing. You know, what should a small business specialist or an IT professional or a reseller be looking for? in a mentor, maybe what are some of the benefits of, first of all, let's talk about some of the benefits of mentoring. What, what are some of the benefits that we can, uh, I know what they are, you know what they are, but maybe that person listening on the treadmill at the gym right now is, doesn't know what the benefits of mentoring are. Well, the reality comes back to the circle of knowledge again, is that you don't know everything you need to know. So finding people that have been where you want to go is a big part of mentorship. So whether they have wisdom in, a, in an area of life that you want help in or an area of business, 
You want to find people that have those experiences so that you can shortcut the mistakes that they've made. I mean, that's really what a mentor can do is to help you avoid. Sometimes you need to make the mistakes. I mean, I, I, my dad is a, a good businessman, and he tried to teach me everything he ever learned. And there were certain experiences he couldn't teach me. I needed to learn them on my own. There were certain things that no matter how much he wanted me to learn from his experience, that I just couldn't do that. I needed to have that experience on my own to really own it and really be um, connected with that lesson. And I believe we're all taught lessons every day, and mentors are people that can help you through them. I mean, I have a couple of people, one of them specifically that I think about on a regular basis is uh, John Katzman, who is the CEO of the Princeton Review, the testing company, and he's about uh, 700 employees, gone public. And I, met, I saw him speak about 10 years ago at a conference, and I just stayed in touch with him. And I have breakfast with him probably every three to six months. And when I run into really tough problems in my business, I call him because I know he's been through it all. He's had partners. He's dealt with um, outside projects similar to the, what I'm working on with different corporations, and he's dealt with all different situations where he's someone I can talk to. So mentorship can really be effective on a number of different levels, and you should always be looking for people that have knowledge that you don't. And um, the piece that I'm, I'm confused about, I kind of understand, never been a problem for me, is that people believe that others are unapproachable. And I would say the most successful people in the world are the most approachable. And if approached properly, could be phenomenal mentors. And the key is what I said, approach properly, with clear understanding that you need to respect a mentor's time, you need to understand what you want from the mentor's relationship, and you need to understand what the mentor wants in return. And if you can understand those basics of mentorship, you can find some super successful people that can help guide you through the process of building a business. Yeah, and one of the things I challenge I see, Larry, and this is the first, that's just that core principle, is a lot of people are afraid to ask yep. uh, and ask for anything in their life. And you, never, you don't get what you don't ask for. That's principle number one I live by. And uh, I have some great mentors. I just had to ask them. And, again, yeah. take those, and take those considerations that you mentioned. But the first step is just asking. And most people are very approachable. And uh, some of the most successful people are the most open people I've ever met in my life. Or, yep. you know, I have one, uh, Jim Estill, who's the CEO of Phoenix Canada. Whenever uh -huh. I'm in Toronto, I make an appointment of spending some time with him. I respect his time. And I book it well enough in advance so he can properly arrange his schedule. But these are the things, these are the considerations. Now, on the whole mentor thing is, you know, what is, you know, what are some of the things that a mentor can do for a small business specialist? You know, we talk about maybe expanding the network or, you know, maybe getting him into some area, maybe getting a small business specialist in the areas that, you know, not normally they would be able to navigate on their own. Are these things that you see a mentor do for a small yeah. business specialist? I mean, I think a mentor can just open your eyes to some bigger picture things, especially someone who's built a, a larger organization, is that what are the hurdles? I mean, building a solution provider today, there's, there's gates. I mean, to get from a one-employee self-made uh, person to getting to five to ten employees is one barrier. You have to learn how to hire people and at least start to get them to do the things you need to do versus just having them run around like, chickens with their heads cut off. So you get to that 10-employee barrier. Um, and then the next stage is to get from 10 to 20, 25 employees. And that takes hiring some managers that can actually manage the individuals versus everybody reporting to you. 
And then once you start to get from 25 to 50, you need to start to have the managers that actually are good, not just managers that can manage some people, but they actually have to be functional and they have to be good at what they do. And then to get from 50 to 100, you have to turn from a typically a family culture business where everybody's involved in everything to a professionally structured organized business where you have experts in each role within your business. So each strata, each state of business growth requires different skills. And you'll require different mentors at some times. I mean, you might find someone, so let's say there's a really good executive who's never started anything from scratch. He might be really good to help you to get from 25 or 30 employees to 60 or 70 by putting management discipline, but they might not be very helpful in the early stages because they never experienced it. So you want to find people that have experienced what you've exper you're experiencing versus giving you ideas. Like our main program that we offer is a peer program. And one of my rules in our peer program is to speak from your own personal experience, not from conjecture or thought. And if you're going to speak from thought, this is what I think you should do, never done it, but it sounds like a good idea in my head, then you need to say that. Because the idea of a peer group is to talk about things you've actually done, because a number of people have already done things and how it's worked or hasn't worked for you. So you want to find those mentors that have actually done the things that you're going through. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, you, you gave um, some great sizes of business. Most of the people who listen to this program are in that 1 to 10 employee type of uh, range. But many of us start with partners. My, my company here in Calgary, I have, there's three partners. And you kind of rewind the tape a little bit here. I'm good at selling stuff. My partner Rob's good at fixing stuff, and my buddy, uh, my partner Tony, is good at getting the money into the company. So we all have our distinct roles. But what are some of the challenges, Larry, you see in those early days with IT professionals or resellers that enter into a partnership? Well, first of all, I find that most people don't invest as much time as they should. I mean, you are getting married. You are going to spend more time with your business partner than you probably will even with your spouse. Um, and I have a whole list of questions. We um, writing our first book, and I think we actually pulled some of this stuff out, and we'll put it in another document. We actually did one on selling your business, and um, in there is a whole list of questions of things to ask when entering into a partnership. So some of it has to do with where you are in your life. Um, I find that when you have younger and older partners together, that if you don't discuss it up front, you might run into some challenges. Um, how old your kids are are things to think about. How big you want the company to become? What is your skill set to actually get there? So the ability for a technical person to grow as fast as a sales and marketing person sometimes is not equal. So you might start the business on equal footing and 10 years later realize that the salesperson has way outperformed the technical resource. You started out as a 50-50 partnership. And you're getting paid equally, but yet you're not doing equal work. And so... To me, when you're starting a partnership, there's a couple of things that need to get clearly defined. And the piece that I see melded together the most is that I see three different buckets melded into ownership. So ownership is broken down for me into equity, roles and responsibilities in the company, and your compensation. And most owners and most partnerships lump those things together. So if we're 50-50 partners, we're both going to take leading roles in the business, we're both going to get paid equally, and we both own half the business. So if I were to look at that as an outside person, I would say I'm not sure that that's really the best way to go. 
I think you own 50% of the company because you invested in the beginning. And if the business is ever sold, you should share in that equity equally. And at the end of the year, you should share dividends equally. Now, your roles in the business should be based on your skill set and your ability to deliver on the roles that the business needs at that time. And your compensation should be based on your ability to deliver on the role that you're asked to do. Now, that's an ideal world, and most business partners don't do that. But that is a challenge, is because you have people in jobs that they shouldn't be in because they're an owner of the company. I have one company that I know that one of the early investors, um, this is a private equity-backed company now, but one of the early investors has owned 18% of the company when he invested his money into the business, and his highest role in the company was the manager of customer service. He owned the company, 18% of it, and he will get the benefits of that ownership at some point in time with a cash out, some exit from the business, yet he's taken on a role that is not an ownership quote-unquote role, and his compensation is commensurate with the role that he plays in the company. And to me, that is the optimal way to build a business. But I see a lot of challenges between inequities, between partners, the amount of work they do, and their ability to deliver, and their compensation, and melding that into ownership. Yeah, I see that as well, Larry. And, it's, and not, not not all the time do you have to have a director position or VP or president or CEO as a as a partner in the business. I like that one example that you gave us about this person being, you know, just a regular uh, manager in the in the company. Because maybe that's what their skill sets are. Or, you know, better term, that's probably what they enjoy doing. And then exactly. hired, all the, hired out all the other expertise. Just want to remind anybody who's listening to us live on BlogTalkRadio.com that the guest lines are now open to call in. You can call in at area code 646-716-8372. If you have a question for Larry or myself, feel free to um, we'll take your call in and uh, feel free to ask your question. One thing, Larry, I want to talk to you about partnerships is how important is it to have a good attorney review the partnership agreement before you actually sign anything? Um, I actually think that there's a whole different view to it is that I think you should have a good attorney representing each one of you separately. Um, I had a client who had one lawyer handle a three-person contract. They had problems with the contract, and the lawyer that handled the agreement couldn't represent any of them because he represented all of them. So you probably want to even have individual lawyers working on your behalf to take care of you. And if you're going to review and do a buy-sell agreement, do not have it done by one lawyer because you will run into problems eventually if you both want to use or three of you want to use that lawyer for your disillusionment or any, any um, issues you're going to have, you'll get, that lawyer will get thrown out in court. Okay. So, and, you know, we got all these, we got all our T's crossed and our I's dotted. We got, each of us got our own attorney. What do you see, Larry, dealing with the people that you work with on a, on a, a daily basis? Are some of the partnership struggles after, you know, after the dating's been done and the marriages, you know, we all set our vows and we all do, what are some of the challenges you see? Because I, I hear all the time that how many partnerships dissolve because of misunderstandings. But what are some of the challenges you see in the reseller community around partnerships? Well, I mean, if we go back to the book we're writing, and it should be out soon, called Culture of Accountability, we break down the challenges in the solution provider business into three buckets. And I would say the biggest reason that partnerships fail is the first bucket, which is communications. Um, I think that technical resources in the first place are not very communicative individuals. So 
I mean, I've done a lot of behavioral assessment work, and if you look at the a disc profile or any type of Myers-Briggs or anything like that, the average technician, their natural state is not emotional, and their natural way of being is to not express themselves. So if they're angry or frustrated or something like that, they'll keep it inside, and they won't tell anybody for a long time until they blow up. Now, the sales professional or the, the extrovert, um, those that run the front end of the business, are exactly the opposite. So you end up with people that one just absorbs it all the time, and the two don't understand how each other communicate. So it all comes down to me, the reasons that relationships fail, whether it be business, personal, or anything, is a lack of understanding, lack of clarity, lack of definition of rules, just a lack of communication in general. And it's not rocket science, yet if you don't understand that I have a business partner today, we've been together for 10 years, and I know that things I did five years ago used to piss him off. And I don't do them anymore because we've done the work to get to know each other. I know that when I tell him something once, I do not need to repeat it again ever. He'll remember it longer than I will. So when I bring things up multiple times, all it does is annoy him and agitate him, which is not my objective. And having partnerships also has to do with give and take. I know that my partner will never be me, and I know he knows that I will never be him and that we appreciate the strengths that we have and we try and find a middle ground as much as possible. But at the end of the day, we know we're both doing what we believe is best for our business. And I think that gets lost, and it really comes down to communications and people's inability to say what's on their mind, to feel comfortable. There's a great, great book by um, Douglas Stone called Difficult Conversations and to understand that there's your story there's the other person's story, and then there's the third story, which is the story in between, and to take it from a third person's perspective to say, I know this is hard for you to understand, but this is the way that I see it. Tell me how you see it, and let's figure out a common ground, that that doesn't happen much, that people just get angry and they get frustrated and they, they bottle stuff up and they don't communicate it. And a couple years later, it's like, what happened to my buddy who was my business partner? Well, a lot of it had to do with lack of communication. I see that as uh, myself the number one failure in a lot of uh, solution providers that I talk to is communication, and that's not, not necessarily communication amongst the management team or the staff, even communication outside of the business, where you have a bunch of you have a bunch of introverts in in IT and system professionals that naturally you mentioned they're naturally uh, introverts. They're, it's either black or white. It's either one or zero. It's on or off. Where yep. you have the failed people are more. It's more gray for them. It's, and the technicians think the salespeople live in a fantasy world, and the salespeople believe the sales or the technical people just don't just don't get it. However, what we see uh, a lot of challenges is that when you leave the communications up to the introverts to communicate externally from the company, we see all kinds of problems around uh, levels of service, uh, upset clients, upset employees. I mean, it all everything comes down to the core of communications and you can also you, it, you it, it starts right. it starts for me with to me it's all about managing expectations mm-hmm. when expectations are clearly set so a client runs into a problem and the salesperson or the company has a couple of choices you can try and fix it without letting them know about it and hopefully they'll never find out it went wrong and you fix it and everything's good or you have a really 
good relationship with the client. You say, you know what, technology is not perfect. We both know that. Running through this problem right now, we hope it won't affect your business at all. And when it's fixed, I'll tell you. So two totally different approaches to the same problem. And you're going to get different results. If you are clear and comfortable with having that conversation with a client without fear that they're going to leave you and go to – because that's the fear. The fear is that if you tell them the truth, which is what's really going on, then they might go and find another service provider because what – this is the, the fundamental challenge in your business, the fundamental crux of why the fear exists is that you don't own anything. As a solution provider, the only thing you own is that relationship. And the client's lack of knowledge of what you do so that you can do things that they don't know. Now, when you start to engage them in the process and involve them, that could be very fearful for an inexperienced business owner to tell their customer about things. I'm not saying you need to tell your customer about everything, but technology doesn't work. I have a degree in electrical engineering. I have 20 years of sales experience, and I could go sell any technical product in the world that I wanted to right now, but I choose not to because I found very few technology pro products that really do what they're supposed to do. They all do anywhere between 60 and 90% of what they're supposed to do. And the amount of work it takes to get it from 90 to do it exactly what you want it to do costs 10 times as much as the price of the product itself. And to me, that's a challenge with doing technology. But if you're a good solution provider, you understand that, and you manage expectations with your clients so they understand that. Things are going to break. Problems are going to happen. Our job is to minimize the effect. Our opportunity is to put systems in place, especially with managed services, to make sure that they happen less than they did before, that you're able to set up a mechanism that allows your customer to not have to deal with technology. That is your opportunity. It's never going to be perfect. It is never going to work all the time, every time out of the box. That is technology. And the more comfortable you are with that and the more candid you are with your clients, I mean, I'll just go back to com com uh, communications again and, and use a couple of words that I have eliminated from my vocabulary based on some feedback from others that I have met. And one of the words is honestly. I mean, I, I had to blow up with an ex-partner because I used to say, you know, honestly, this is how I feel. And somebody who is a, an excellent professional coach told me, whenever you say honestly, it makes somebody think that you haven't been honest the rest of the time. So you need to choose words more effectively. So to me, candid and forthright are very good substitutions for what most people say honestly. Well, it's not like they're, they want to say honestly. They're really trying to be candid. I want to say what's on my mind right now. It's not like I've been dishonest before, but now I need to be candid and tell you exactly what's on my mind. And that's different than saying honestly. And it's the same thing about using the word family in business. Not everybody has a positive image of the word family. So saying that this is a family business or this business functions like a family, well, there's a lot of dysfunctional families. And people don't like that all the time. So there's words that we choose and how we communicate that really affect the success of our business. Yeah, that's, that couldn't be uh, any further from the, the truth uh, or uh, Larry, because you know what? Words do affect the way we even think. And I, I, you know, I never thought of honestly that way. I heard you mention family in the past. But a couple words that I have I try every day is stricken from my vocabulary are words like problem. Because mm -hmm. it's such a negative word, yep. uh, I'd rather change it to issue or challenge. Uh, kind of puts it more of a positive. You know, if a problem you bring, brings people down, 
if you say challenge, it kind of raises your spirits. Okay, this is, there's a challenge we've got to go and, and take care of. And words like should. I, I try hard not to use that word should because shoulds are horrible. Should, is, to me, is a horrible word. Because you my, know my, mother's a clinical, my mother's a clinical psychotherapist, and she uh, started her, st- her training when I was a teenager. And should is your projection on someone else on what they um, ought to be doing with their life. And it is a really, it's a bad word. It is a very challenging word because you're not them, and you're not in their situation, and they will do what they do. And just because you believe it should be done that way doesn't mean that it should be done that way. Mm-hmm. In other words, I, would agree I can't with that. and no, I try not to use as well because, you know, as soon as you say no, the conver- to me, conversation is pretty much ended. There's always, I find that there's always another way to to get to the solution. But, you know, it's one of those words you kind of use, you have to use every once in a while. But, we, you know, we could spend a whole other show on, on vocabulary. I well, kinda vocabulary, get the- it gets to positive mental attitude. I mean, a lot of it comes down to the, the traditional introvert um, is fearful. I mean, they're, they are afraid... So fear projects negative words, which projects negative outcomes. And it's almost your fear will ensure that what you're concerned about will happen versus the positive mental attitude that says, I believe that positive things will happen, so they will. It's self-fulfilling prophecies, and it's not just in business, it's in life. Yeah, I did a program a couple weeks ago with Raymond Aaron, who's one of my uh, mentors, and we talked about the whole law of attraction and all that stuff, and it was, it was wonderful. But, you know, in, in your culture of accountability, we talk about communication, but there's two other areas that we haven't got to yet, uh, one around process and systems and measurement and monitoring. Let's touch, touch base on, uh, on, the, on systems. I know it, it's a big thing in, in Gerber's EMIS book, but what about process and systems? Where should we be, uh, what should we be doing there? Or, there's well, that word should again. <laughs> yeah, what would be helpful to be effective and more effective in your business is if you look at process and systems, we break down process and systems is if somebody left your business today, would you be able to replace them and have them do the same job tomorrow? And is there comfort? So the average employee, and I'll throw something in here that I see in most business owners, is that most entrepreneurs that I meet expect their employees to function the same way that they do. And if they did function the same way that you did, then they'd be entrepreneurs, not employees. So employees are employees for a reason, and they need comfort. Most of them need structure. Most of them need process to be effective. Most entrepreneurs like to put out fires. Most entrepreneurs like chaos. Most entrepreneurs like it when you say, grab on my coattails and follow me. But most employees do not. So process and systems is all about developing a structure within your business that allows anybody to plug into a role, and also to make the business easier. So we break down process and systems into two separate buckets. So there's processes within your business. So you need a human capital process. You need a marketing process. How do you attain and attract clients? You need a process for um, your human capital plan. You need to understand how to recruit. And do you have a recruiting process? Does everybody in your business know that when somebody comes into your business, we need to have a funnel to get people in here so we can interview regularly. And once we interview, here's our interviewing process. Here's the form that we give them when they show up at the door to get the information we need. Here's the interview questions. Here's the offer letter, should we actually want to give them a job. Here's the checklist of things we need to accomplish before they show up their first day at work. So they need a 
email address. They need business cards. They need a computer. They need a desk. They need a list of all the things that are around um, the office where they can go get lunch and where the local banks are and all this stuff that makes somebody comfortable their first day at work. And then you need a checklist of all the things you should do their first 90 days on the job. To me, that's a process. And you should have that process for recruiting. You should have that process for employee development. You should be building in systems for reviewing your employees. And this is all stuff that happens in stages. I don't want anybody to feel overwhelmed, like I don't do any of this now. How do I get started? Every day, take one step closer to putting systems in place in your business. So if you choose today that I'm going to focus on recruiting as a process, well, let's develop a recruiting process, and let's take the next 30 to 60 to 90 days to say, by the time we're done with this period of time, we're going to have this process in place. And then when that's done, we'll do another process. And if you look at business over the long haul, you're always going to have challenges in your business, no matter what. As I said earlier, there's no perfect business, so you're always going to be fixing. So fix one problem at a time. I have this rule of threes that you really can't focus on more than three initiatives at once. So pick the three things that are most important to you, revenue generation, instilling systems, and maybe recruiting some people. could be your initiatives right now. But eventually you need to put in new, you need to put in new accounting system, and maybe you're looking at ConnectWise or Autotask or looking at um, some other tools to help your business. That is a major initiative. Um, and that's the second half of process and systems. So the process, if we look at the different processes, you're looking at a marketing process, a human and capital process, a sales and sales management process, and then an operational process. How do technicians interface with your business? How do those technicians log their time? How do they make sure that the customer is satisfied they need the, the way they need to be? So those are all different buckets for developing processes. On the system side, it's about how do you automate that process or how do you implement that process into a reproducible system that anybody can interface with. And that's where you start looking at some of the tools in the marketplace and to know that there is no perfect tool and that the success of any tool will be most dependent not on the tool itself but on the buy-in of the ownership of the business in that tool. So the companies that function well are the ones where the owners have really said that this is a tool we're going to use and they use it themselves. Those are the companies that we see be successful. So whether you're using TigerPaw or ConnectWise or Autotask or any other of a, a gazillion options that you have, whether it's Great Plains or some accounting platform that you're building off of, they can all be successful. But they're only going to be successful based on the commitment of the ownership to implement them effectively. Okay. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Where I'm talk when I'm talking to CEOs and presidents of oil and gas companies where I, the market I serve, they have their systems and their processes and their end goals clearly defined. Then they're not concerned if they're using products. Like they do a lot of mapping and GIS type work. To them, the tools are not as important as it is to the technician, uh, as it is to the CEO. They just want to get the end result, which is exactly show, show me what my map looks like, tell me where the oil is, and tell me where I need to drill. Yep. You guys were able to tools that were needed, and they use ConnectWise Valotaps for IT professionals. They may look at Acumap and GeoScout as different oil and gas tools. To the people like myself in my business, I don't care what the tools look like. I just need the output, and I need to know where i got to go, and I need to know what I need to do, and have the right people on my bus that know how to use the tools that we have in place, ConnectWise, AutoTab, Tiger, whatever the tools are out there. That's 
important to them. To me, it's not as critical important, but the system, developing that system and process is very, very important to making sure that employee who needs that structure knows what they need to do when they come in at 8 o'clock in the morning and when they leave at 5 o'clock. No question. And they know so what, what to do if they're not there. Other people know what to do if that person's not there. Yeah, exactly. So what about measurement and monitoring? What, uh, what can we talk about there? Well, to me, measurement and monitoring, we've started to do a lot of benchmarking for our clients. And um, I would tell you right now that one of the critical opportunities for this marketplace is to become more attuned into their, their numbers. Um, I can't tell you how many partners just don't know their numbers, period, flat, cold, at the end of the day. They don't know what contributes to their profit. They know at the end of the month or the end of the quarter or the end of the year that they made money or lost money. They have no idea how to tweak the dials. They have no idea how to move that number other than sell more stuff. And most people that I've met have been able to outsell their problems. And that's really at the end of the day how most solution providers succeed is they outsell the inefficiency of their own business. Because you are shoe cobbler's kids. Your job is to automate and to help companies improve their processes by using technology. And that's the last thing you do for your own business. So with that said, to me, measurement and monitoring boils down to two significant issues. The first significant issue is what should I monitor? What are the critical things that I need to look at in my business to see whether I'm successful or not? So am I looking at profitability per employee? Am I looking at gross margin per sales rep? Am I looking at profitability per technician, cost per technician, cost per technician, hour? Am I looking at my build versus unbuild ratio? Am I looking at those numbers? That's issue number one. And issue number two is the, the monitoring part is how does that compare to other companies like mine? And just because you know what your metrics are doesn't mean you know whether they're good or not. So the best CEOs I know not only want to know what their numbers are, but they want to know what the industry standard is. So I'll give you a specific example. I have a CEO that I've known for a while that was a perfectionist, and he really wanted the benchmark data to say, you know what, if I'm at benchmark, I can't push my team any harder to improve that metric. So I'll give you one metric. Let's say a telecommunications reseller is averaging 42.5% gross margin, uh, blended gross margin of their projects, hardware and services. That's benchmark. Probably 43, 43.5 is as good as you're going to get, as we've seen in the industry, period, end of statement, not going to get much higher in that industry. So if you're at 42.5 and you're doing really well in that area and that's good, but your build to unbuild ratio is not as good as it should be, which is realization of how many hours are you working, yet how many hours are you working that you're not billing, um, and that's low, then that's the metric you should focus on because pushing people in an area where your benchmark is just going to frustrate the machine. It's like any car. You can't go past the speed limit and not expect the car to break down. So your business is going to break down if you push on every metric all the time. You need to find the ones that are challenging your business, like DSO. And DSO is day sales outstanding. If you're not looking at your accounts receivable, uh, we have a client that we've been working with for two years, and uh, they're probably doing more revenue today, and their ARs on $10 million in revenue 
is somewhere around 800,000 or less. When we first met them, their ARs were around 1.4 million. That difference of $600,000 in receivables in the same size business is a huge number. I mean, that's pure cash in the bank. So when people don't understand the impact of receivable issues, then they have no idea what good looks like. So if they don't know what their DSO is, so industry average DSO is about 50-plus days, let's say 54, which really sucks. I mean, business benchmark in this industry should be somewhere in the mid-30s. There are exceptions. Those that deal with the government, those that deal with certain types of clients might see slower payments, but you can still get your payment terms down. And the difference on a $10 million business on 10 days of receivables from 55 to 45, I think it's a $20 million business going from 55 days to 45 days is uh, actually 55 days to 50 days is a $275,000 cash in the business today. There's a diff delta of $275,000 in cash in the business today based on five days difference on your DSO. So it's most amazing. people it's don't amazing. know that. Yeah, it's amazing, Larry. It's uh, what you, you know, the, again, I get back to what we don't know in the whole circle of knowledge, right? Yep, it all comes full circle at the end of the day. I mean, you can only know so much. So that's why mentors are important. That's why outside resources are important. That's why it's important to participate in a peer group and go to conferences and learn as much as you can, and you'll never know enough. You'll never know. The best entrepreneurs I know are always seeking more knowledge because there's too much to learn. And, like my and uh, mentor, Raymond Aaron, said to me a few weeks ago, he says, there's no such thing as a lone wolf out there. And a lot of people think they're lone wolves and they want to know it all and want to do it all. But let's face it, if you ever hired a babysitter, you delegated uh, child care. If you ever went out to a restaurant to cook or to eat, you delegated cooking. So you know what? There's no such thing as a lone wolf. So if you've got that mentality, you better just clear that out of your mind right now because there is no such thing as a lone wolf. And I think a lot of us in the small business specialist community, attack the market as if we're lone wolves? Do you see that? Um, yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's no question that that's a huge issue in this industry, is that the reality is you know a little bit more than your clients. Sometimes you know a lot more than your clients. But I can promise you that anybody who's listening to this show, I can introduce you to someone who knows ten times more than you do. And that person still doesn't know anything. And that's reality, because there are some brilliant people out there brilliant absolutely brilliant and they still don't know a smidgen so if you think, think that you know everything it's i mean you can spend your whole life just understanding how windows nt really works versus trying to fix it on a machine and make it work you don't understand how it really works you think you figured out how to fix the problems that it throws off but that's just fixing it you don't really understand how it at the the base of it, it works. And if you really do, then how do you learn that about Microsoft and Cisco and phone systems and, and uh, wireless devices? You can't learn it about all of that. That's why your technicians are screaming because I can only fix so many things at once. I can only learn so much at once. I can only absorb so much at once before I become – there's not enough time to train and do the work, and the technology is moving really quickly. One of the things when I was doing uh, IT services, and I was a technician at one time, is that I was I used to build when we still build the hours. I used to build quite a few hours a day, and people always ask, "How did I manage to do that?" Well, first I partnered with up with right people, and I never I never invested the time to learn how things worked. And if I hard drive failed, I can replace a hard drive. I remember I can add memory and stuff. But you know what? My best 
skill was I knew the right people to call yep. to take a machine to or get them involved to fix a Cisco router or whatever. And that's with a, and that's how I did it in my days of uh, being an IT consultant. There we got like a couple minutes left of this morning. Uh, in conclusion, what last bit of tidbit of information can you share with us and maybe how people can reach out to you if they want to touch base with you a little bit more de- uh, in depth after uh, they listen to this program? Sure. Well, just get in touch with me. Uh, our website is the number 4-profit.com. My email address is actually very easy, Larry at 4-profit.com. Um, I just, just in summary, I have a tremendous respect for anybody who started a business. As I said at the beginning, I've been on my own for 15 years now, and uh, I have no idea how anybody could go back and take a job. But <clears throat> a lot of it comes down to being able to survive. I mean, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs and getting past that survival point in a business. I know people that have been in the solution provider business for 10 years and they're still struggling just to make a living because they haven't learned the lessons they need to learn. So my suggestion is to learn the lessons that you haven't learned and to find the people out there that can help teach you the lessons because the reasons you're stuck in your business wherever you are or growing as fast as you are, whatever it is, um, has to do with your ability and, and desire to learn the lessons you need to learn so you can move on to the next lesson. And everybody is at exactly where they're supposed to be all the time, and everybody has the information they need to get to that next step um, or access to that information through others. So I would suggest that you go find people. You go find the information. You surround yourself with positive people. Get all the negative people out of your life because there will always be people that will tell you that you can't do this and you can't do that. And at the end of the day, life's way too short to listen to people that say you can't do things. Yeah, remove the poison from your life. is a number one life lesson I've uh, uh, even came to realization in the last little while. Just get rid of those poisonous people out of your business and out of your life. Larry, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day today, especially over your lunch hour being on the East Coast, to come and talk to us on the Small Business IT Show today. My pleasure. You have a great day. And thank you. And just a reminder, we've got some great upcoming shows here in the next uh, little while, we have Windows Essential Business Server on tap next week. We have Arlen and a few other folks coming on to talk about uh, that great new product. Harry Brelsford is coming on February the 15th. We have uh, an interview with Eric Ligman on the 8th of February. Everything's at blogtalkradio.com slash SMB. And if, yeah, if you're looking for a mentor, give Larry a call, or you can even check out my mentor site at itsuccessmentor.com. And, again, we all do different things. So, and as Larry said, you get multiple mentors out there to do uh, help you out with your business. So this is Stuart Crawford in Calgary signing off for the Small Business IT Show today. Look forward to talking to you next week as we discuss Windows Essential Business Server.